everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Crime and Coffee Couple. My name's Allison. And my name is Mike. Hi, Mike. Hey, babes. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you could say we've had a hectic day here at the uh, Crime and Coffee Couple household. I would also describe it as exciting. Um, yeah, exciting. A lot of different things. Why don't you tell everybody what happened? We adopted a new kitten today. Yeah, he's orange and uh, his name is Pickles. Yes. Um, it's for our son. You know, I he's always wanted a cat and he's never really shown to us that he could take care of uh, another living thing, let alone himself, because <laughs> he is 14 years old. And, you know, that's tough. These it's teenagers. a shit show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, we got to still remind him about brushing his teeth, deodorant, um, shaving now. So a lot of things going on. <laughs> but um, actually, I blame Allison's coworker. Uh, name starts with a D and ends with an I. So <laughs> that's what we'll say. So thanks a lot, Miss D. And uh, she said, well, you know what? I'm going to get myself a little playmate for my kitten. And then all of a sudden, Allison turns her lights on like, oh, it's time for me to get a kitten, too. Well, our cat is what he's going to be a year old in a couple weeks. Yeah, he's getting older now. So. And he's been very playful lately. And we've been saying, you know, we want to get him a playmate and do it while he's young so that they're close in age. So now seem like a good time. Plus, our son has been dedicated to football all summer long. He's been getting up for camp without a single complaint. So we thought that he deserved it and he was showing signs of maturity and responsibility and it just seemed like a good time. And, and he's adorable and we'll post pictures. Um, our son and the cat. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a cute little guy. And yeah, so far, I mean, we, we got a pick from two of them and uh, this was the one I felt good about. Um, we had a long hair and a short hair option and we got the short hair. So yeah. we'll see how it goes. We'll let you know. Just um, getting our little uh, puppy here, Poppy, get, getting her used to the cat or the kitten, I should say, as well as our cat. Our cat was like growling at him. So yeah, that's fun. Pretty soon, I'd say they'll get used to each other within a week or so. Yeah, yeah, should be good. Um, yeah. Besides that, um, we did tell our patrons about a uh, chocolate cake recipe. Yeah, so I have to share this recipe. And sorry, patrons, if you're hearing this again, but we had our neighbors over for dinner on Tuesday. And I was looking around dessert recipes, always on Pinterest. And I came across an Ina Garden recipe. She's the Barefoot Contessa on the Food Network. If you're not familiar with her, she's amazing. She's a perfectionist. She like checks her recipes over and over and over. So you know if she's putting it out, it's going to be good. This one was also easy. So you get these cookies. I had never heard of them. They're called Tate's Bake Shop Cookies. You can get them pretty much anywhere. And again, I had never seen them or known that I'd seen them. I thought this was like a super special thing. You can only get rare places. So and, you got them where? Uh, you you can get them. We got them on Kroger. You can get them on Amazon. You saw them at Publix. I'd say pretty much any grocery store. So um, they're these crispy, delicious cookies. You make this homemade whipped cream concoction with some uh, espresso in it, like uh, the powdered espresso and then cocoa powder. And then you layer it in a springform pan with these cookies, like five or six layers. Let it sit overnight so that the cookies can get like kind of like almost cake-like. Yeah, it turns into a cake. So it's basically turning cookies into a cake. If you like cookies and you like whipped cream, this is like basically godsend, basically. So it was fantastic. Our neighbors loved it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, highly, highly recommend it. We put it together in like 15 minutes. It was the devil having leftovers in the house because at night when we were watching TV, (laughs) I was like, it 
it's cake time. <laughs> if you want to gain lots of weight in a hurry, go ahead and make this cake immediately. Oh, it is so good. But the, I read the reviews and everyone's like, I bring it and everyone wants the recipe. They're raving over it. That was also my experience. My neighbor wanted the recipe immediately. So we will post the recipe and I highly suggest you make it if you're in charge of providing a dessert. Allison's favorite thing is something easy. So yes. go ahead and make it. Super um, easy. No bake too. No bake. Fantastic. And lastly, real quick before we get started, want to say a cool little story. Um, a person I work with uh, reached out and said, hey, you wouldn't happen to be the mic from Crime and Coffee Couple, would you? I was like, yeah. So I just want to say, hey, Erica, I know you're listening. So. How crazy is that? She found our podcast yeah. and just happens to work at the same company as Mike. I said many times, it's a big company. We've never talked to each other previously, but it was cool to make that connection. It's a small world. It is. You know, it feels big, but it's small. Yeah. So, so shall we get started? I say let's do it, guys. Let's do this. All right. So we're going to jump into this. And this is the murder of Karen Gregory. So it was 1984, and Karen Gregory was a 36-year-old woman. She's originally from Albany, New York. She was born on March 29, 1948. She attended Nazareth College in Rochester, New York. She earned not one, but two degrees, if one wasn't enough, one for art and one for science. Karen was described as athletic. She loved to bike ride. She loved to swim. She loved cooking, reading, going to concerts, live stage shows. She loved music. She had many friends and was someone that would basically do anything for somebody that she loved. That's how people would describe her. Good person to know. So she was a vegetarian. Her favorite movie was Black Orpheus. Never heard of that Me one. Me neither. So in 1982, Karen relocated to the picturesque artsy town. It's a very colorful beachy town. We have vacation there. This is Gulfport, Gulfport. Florida. And a uh, fun little fact, there's a mayor that's like a dog. So the dog is the mayor of Gulfport. Except when we brought our dog there because it's one of those beachy, like super dog friendly towns. Super. Dogs everywhere. Yeah. And we had our dog with us and we were like, no way she's the mayor of gulfport so yes. we're like i'm poppy and i'm the mayor of gulfport that's right so it's super cute it's right by st petersburg florida which is also um, an amazing city so it's um just a great place to visit if you're in florida so this is in pinellas county florida family and friends describe karen as a free spirit she had a variety of careers throughout her life including teaching elementary school art working as a potter, and most recently she was working as a waitress at the Garden Restaurant in downtown St. Pete, Florida. So this was basically, she was transitioning from this job to her new career at Dat Datacom Associates. She was working as a graphic artist, so this was a new position at the time of the story. She had just started, and she was doing very well. She was enjoying the new challenge of this new career. So Karen's mom and two brothers, they still lived up in Albany, New York, but her sister was local. She was living in Dunedin, Florida, which is another cute town. So Karen loved Florida. She loved the sunny beaches, all the tourist attractions that Florida has to offer. She um, had met a man also on her move. This is David Mackey. So she is dating David at the time of this story. They found each other at a jazz concert on the beach. And Karen just happened to be the aggressor of the relationship. She was the one to make the first move and contacted David, which ultimately led them to start dating. Hey, good for her. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Why not? You want something, you go for it. Mm -hmm. So the two bonded over their love of the beach as well as music, specifically reggae music. 
Karen loved that this type of music um, was about creating peace and bringing harmony in the world with you know between others. I couldn't agree more. Put me in a pool with some reggae music and everything is fine. I know sometimes it's confusing because of course we live in Florida and we'll be in our pool and have like reggae type music on and I'm like wait a second it's Sunday and I have to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> like I sucks, immediately but... think vacation. Right. So I do love reggae. So after a year of dating, Karen and David are progressing in the relationship, and this is when they decided that they were going to move in together. So up until that point, Karen had been renting an apartment. She was living with her roommate, who was Anita Kilpatrick, near Pasagrill Beach, which is our beach of choice when we um, go to the Actually, beach. no, it's not. Nobody should ever go there, ever. So <laughs> we don't please want it don't to go start there. to get crowded. Yes, it's horrible. Needles everywhere. Lots of bad <laughs> things. Just please don't go there. That's our beach. Thank you. So, uh, you know, Clearwater Beach, I'm sure most people know of this beach. That is like my idea of hell on earth. The inner circle of hell. Yeah, it's I horrible. hate it. It's everything I hate. It's Too many crowds. People. It's just super touristy. Passagirl Beach is like the clear opposite of this. It's quiet. It's calm. Oh, amazing we need to delete that part out of the podcast (laughs) so on tuesday may 22nd 1984 karen was still moving her last minute things from her old apartment into david's house he lived in a quiet neighborhood of gulfport david worked as a counselor at veterans administration medical center at bay pines he happened to be out of town at a conference in rhode island at this point so you know karen's using this opportunity to you know continue you know how it is when you're moving there's so many things she's just arranging her last minute items getting settled into his house in her new neighborhood and her new life Good it was exciting because he's gone so you can kind of put things where you want and, exactly yeah So that evening, Karen headed to her friend's house. This is Naveen Covington. She was going there for dinner. The two relaxed. They chatted over white wine as Karen told Naverne, I'm sorry, it's Naverne, how happy she was with her job and her new relationship. Things are very exciting. You know, she's venturing in on a new career. Her relationship is progressing. She's in a new place. So they were just catching up. So between midnight and 1 a.m. on Wednesday, now May 23rd, we're in the early morning hours of May 23rd, Karen left Naverne's to head back to her new house, you know, that she is now sharing with David. So sometime around 1.15 a.m., at least 16 neighbors would eventually report hearing a scream within a two-block radius of where Karen was living. So one of the neighbors is Arthur Culper. He described the scream as a short, agonizing scream. Another neighbor, Martha Borkowski, she lived directly across the street. She also heard the scream. She also heard a door slamming. So um, she didn't feel that the scream sounded like somebody was in trouble, so she didn't do anything about it. When Glenda Harness, who lived adjacent to Karen and David's home, heard the scream, she looked out her kitchen window. She knew that her boyfriend, George Lewis, was out there working in the garage. So I don't know if she kind of like deferred him to do something about it because he was outside. But that's just what happened in this situation. So she herself felt scared by the scream, but she didn't do anything. 20 minutes went by and George came inside and the two just basically went to bed. Nothing came from it. So, you know, it's kind of interesting because it is a quiet community. And George Lewis, who was out in the garage, just so happens to be part. And when I say part, he's actually the head 
of the neighborhood watch committee. Oh, well, so, this is his time to pop in, right? Exactly. And and a side note, George is always known to be one to report things to the neighborhood watch. That's probably the guy you want in charge of being the neighborhood watch. So in and, this case, he didn't do anything. Oh, interesting. But what he said was that he was in the garage. He had the door open. He had the radio on. He said he heard the scream. He described it as faint. He said that he went to the street. He kind of like walked out into the middle of the street to kind of get a, a view of what was going on in all directions. He didn't see anything. He looked around for a few minutes. This is when he just decided, hey, I'm going inside. I'm going to go to bed. In all honesty, you know, I would probably do something similar. It's like you look around, see if you hear another scream or mm-hmm. something else, more commotion, something being knocked over. And it's like, I randomly heard a scream. Who knows? Maybe somebody dropped a dish or yeah, whatever it might be. And also Gulfport, like it's a, you know, a little bit of a party town sort of, you know, you got a lot of bars and restaurants and things of that nature around. This was 1984. We were spending time in Gulfport, what, two years ago, 2021. I don't know what it looked like in 1984. Now there's like a ton of restaurants. There's, you know, um, wine bars and things like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it looked like at that point. Yeah. I mean, we know that there was that town center, like right by the beach that it was very hopping area, Mm -hmm. you know, years ago. So I'm sure it was something similar, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, I would picture it more like a key, like not Key West, but like a another key town. You know, it seems it feels like you're in Key West, more yeah. beachy, fun, whatever. But yeah, the, for George not to do anything, I don't think that's out of out of hand. Okay, so later that day and into the evening, now we're moving on because, of course, those were the very very early hours of Wednesday, May 23rd. Now we're moving towards the evening. So the neighbor Martha, who heard the scream and then the door slamming. She noticed that the door to Karen and David's house was open. To what degree, I'm not sure. But they had a window. Um, oh, gosh, this is what I do, Mike. It's jealousy. Yep. So we looked up the saying of it. So they had a front door. It's called a jealousy door. And if you might know what this is, if you look it up, but it's got glass slats that are kind of like blinds. And these slats are able to be flipped open so that if it's nice outside and you're wanting a breeze, you can get it. Well, what are those nice blinds that people have that are wood? Um, those are uh, plantation shutters. So they're plantation shutters, but inside of wood, it's glass. Yeah. So I think that was back in the 70s. You'd see those. So shortly after Martha took notice of this, a friend just happened to come to Karen and David's house. Apparently, Karen had invited him for dinner. When no one came to the door, he decided to leave a note. It said it was on David's car, so I'm not sure how David got to the airport. But regardless, he left a note on the car that said, Karen and David, hello, I stopped by about 7.15 or so, but I saw no signs of life. Many to do tonight, so I probably won't be back, but I have something you wanted. We'll be home not too late. And he left. So meanwhile, David was still in Rhode Island for his work trip. He's starting to worry because he's calling home, trying to get a hold of Karen. She's not answering the phone. Oh, that'd be such a scary situation. Of course, this is 1984. We do not have the technology we have now where, you know, you could look at find my iPhone and see where the person is or whatever. Text them. Text them. (laughs) Exactly. Text a neighbor. Yada, yada. Yeah, you basically, if they're not at that house, it's like they could be anywhere. Exactly. So his worrying is increasing as time is going on and he's still not reaching his girlfriend. So he decided to call Karen's old roommate, Anita, to see if she had seen or spoken to Karen. She had not. He checked in with Karen's sister. She also hadn't seen Karen. The next morning, now it's Thursday, May 24th, which is a good day because it's my birthday. And our anniversary. And our anniversary. David was hoping to catch Karen early before she had left for work. So he called at that point. Still no answer. And he knew 
that this is the time that she gets ready to leave for work. So the fact that she wasn't answering, it just was not sitting well for him. So he decided then to call her new job. They informed him that she did not come in that day. She also hadn't come in the previous day. Oh, man, that's red flags everywhere. That's sad. And of course, this is a new job. She's loving it. She's a responsible adult. She's not going to just not come in. So right away, David knows that something wrong is happening here. And he's so far away, can't do anything about it. Yeah, he's thousand, you know, over a thousand miles away. So he decides to call a neighbor. This is Amy Bressler. He said, hey, is Karen's car sitting outside? She looks out the window. Yeah, Karen's car is there. He said, can you please go check and see if she's home? I can't get a hold of her. So Amy went walked over to the house she knocked on the side door she got no answer she went to the front door this is that jealousy door she noticed that some of the glass slats had been broken because they're all individual slats so some were broken and the glass had been scattered onto the pavement so amy peered through the bedroom window at this point and she first is just seeing an unmade bed and then further on into the house she sees to her horror half of a woman's body that has been covered in dried blood laying on the floor she could only see half that was what was visible to her view looking through this window horrific so she couldn't see the person's face she's putting two two and two together and just assuming that it's karen regardless there's a bloody body on the floor she's calling the police sure so the next time you know david's trying still like okay amy's walking over there what did she find he's calling home again this time a police detective is answering the phone i mean what a nightmare Mm. so when police arrived more than 30 hours had passed since the neighbors had heard that scream that night in the early morning hours of may 23rd so police and paramedics entered the house through the back bedroom window and found that karen was in the hallway just outside of the bathroom blood was pooling excuse me all around her it was very hard to see where the blood had come from because it's basically just a bloodbath of a situation. Mm. So it's like you can look at her and not know where she had been injured from. So they also noted something strange. She was not only partially dressed, but she had a t-shirt on and over the t-shirt, she was wearing like pieces of black lingerie, Mm. which you would not wear over a t-shirt. So that was strange. And of course this is causing police to immediately believe that Karen had been sexually assaulted. Detective Bill Brinkworth felt that it looked like an attack of rage. On the bathroom tile, police also noted a bare footprint that had clearly been tracked through the blood and been left that way. Well, that's good because that's evidence. Yeah. And they're looking at Karen's feet that have no signs of blood whatsoever. So you know that this blood print was made from the killer. So, of course, they're going to take note of that. It sounds like a lot of the DNA wasn't useful. And, of course, this is the 1980s. But certain prints just didn't dry right, like handprints and such. Of course, this is a very humid environment of Florida. Um, Windows had been broken. So a lot of the evidence couldn't be preserved in that way. But this footprint was good. If it was like 10 years later, everything would be completely useful. Mm -hmm. So um, bloody handprints covered Karen's body as well as windowsills, curtains, walls and the floor. Police, of course, begin to speak with neighbors. They, This is the time now they're learning that a lot of people heard this scream. Not one or two, close to 20 people. Yeah, that's a lot. 
So they also spoke with George Lewis, of course. He's a neighbor, and he's part of the, the head of the neighborhood head of watch the neighborhood guy. Watch, yep. If anybody's going to know, it's George. He's also a local firefighter EMT, and he filled police in on his recollection of events that night. He indicated that he had noticed a man, not necessarily that night, but he noticed a man at some point coming to Karen's house, walking up to the door, and then back to the car and leaving this note. Oh. The police see this note. They know it's there, so this is true. And police were aware of the note. Like I said, this is signed by somebody named Peter. Authorities quickly tracked Peter down and brought him in for an interview. This is Peter Cumble. He was very cooperative. He provided his fingerprints and footprints. They allowed him to leave. They were not necessarily convinced that he was innocent at this point. Of course, everyone's a suspect at this time. Yeah, Peter probably number one because he was there. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, of course, David, I'm sure is devastated. He's coming back to Florida from Rhode Island. And Anita and another friend tried to beat David to the house so that they could clean up the scene. That's nice. I guess police had already cleared it that you can clean it at this point. They were trying to get it where he could come home and it didn't look like a horrific crime scene. But Anita was so distraught trying to continue the job, she just couldn't do it. Totally understandable. We never know how we're going to react until we get in that situation. No. And, you know, poor David is coming home to where his girlfriend should be. They're exciting. You know, it's an exciting time. They're just moving in together. And this is what he's coming home to. So three days later, Karen's autopsy was complete. It found that she had been stabbed 21 times, specifically in the head and neck. Her throat had been slit. This ultimately was the cause of her death. The medical examiner noted that Karen had fought like hell, and she had a lot of defensive wounds on her hands and arms. Of course, she's trying to shield herself yeah, from her killer. Yeah, so picture as they're coming at you, and like they said, a, a, a fit of rage is absolutely right. 21 times? That's a lot. A lot. And, you know, sadly, she had been raped. She had ultimately been tortured before she slowly or quickly bled to death. I'm not sure at what point they the, her throat had been slit, but... I mean, she she had so many injuries. And obviously, the way she was found with the lingerie over the shirt was likely that her killer had forced her to put it on. It's just disgusting. Yeah, sick. So police had noticed that no lights were on in the house. They wondered how, of course, these people are hearing the scream right around 1.15 a.m. Of course, it's dark outside. How the killer would have gotten by in the pitch darkness without knocking anything over. But maybe they had turned the lights off afterwards. Yeah. Or, you know, why put on lingerie if you can't see anything? Right. So odds are their lights were on. That's what I'm guessing, too. When police spoke with Martha, the neighbor that heard the scream and then the door slam, she also had found, you know, that the door looked to be ajar when she saw it. However, Peter said that it was closed but unlocked. Police are coming to the house when they are ultimately finding Karen deceased. The door was actually locked. So this tells police that the killer had returned to the scene of the crime to lock the door, realizing their mistake. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy and risky and ballsy yes because you're risking being seen at the at the scene of the crime well now they got to go back around and be like hey was there anyone walking around Mm -hmm. uh, an hour or two later or whatever it might have been and of course police are talking to neighbors yeah you know continuously 16 people heard something so yeah they're they're all over the place at least 16 it may have been as high as 21 so because police found blood it was all over the house but specifically window sills and curtains they figured that the killer exited the house that way there were no signs of forced entry it wasn't entirely clear how the killer got into the house 
he may have been let in by Karen. It may have been somebody that she knew. Or it's possible that she they had come through a rear bedroom door because they did see that the screen was torn in a jar. It was impossible to say that it had happened because of a result of this. It may have been like that for a while. It was clear, though, that a struggle clearly carried on throughout the house because of the way the blood was streaked everywhere. And what they believe is that Karen ran through the house and actually struck the locked front door to try to get out, which then caused these louver slats to break and, and shatter forward. So, you know, obviously she was trying to run to save her life and Poor she time. just, she couldn't. Yeah. So it's just awful. Police took prints and hair samples, but ultimately felt their two main suspects were Peter Peter Cumble and David Mackey, her boyfriend, because and I'll tell you more about that, because obviously David is more than 1300 miles away from Florida at the time that Karen was murdered. But police are spinning their wheels thinking, is it possible that he could have taken a flight back to Florida, killed Karen and then returned back to Rhode Island without anyone noticing him missing? You know, say he took an evening flight did this at one fifteen in the morning and got back by the morning, nobody would have known he was gone. Yeah, I mean, you got to look at every possible situation that'd be, you know, the perfect crime. Not right now because you'd be able to find that person digitally, but I'm sure, sure they didn't keep track of things that well in the 80s when you could still walk into the terminal in and out without a ticket. Exactly. So in the meantime, police are asking David to look around the house. Is anything missing? Was this a robbery gone wrong? Who knows? Maybe they didn't think that Karen lived there yet. So they were trying to steal something and then she happened upon them. So he said, no, really, the only thing that I can possibly see that's missing is a white lace teddy that either he or Karen had purchased at some point in time. It's kind of weird to bring that up. I mean, well, that was the only thing he could notice was (laughs) missing. He's like, this is going to sound weird, but this teddy. I thought that that was pretty impressive of him because I'd be like, I have no freaking clue. I mean, you have like 150 t-shirts. I wouldn't know if one was missing. Yeah, same. So um, there was no evidence, though, that the police found that David had any involvement. He was cleared as a suspect. He had only purchased one flight. He had only gone to Rhode Island. He had not come back to Florida. Okay. So he's he's cleared. So uh, they're still talking to Peter in their in their conversations with Peter. They noticed a scratch on his hand. They also wondered if he had left the note as a cover for innocence. Like, why would I possibly put a note at a scene of the crime if I was actually the murderer? Hey, guys, uh, I didn't see anybody here. I definitely wasn't here long. And I was here at 715. Goodbye, Peter Mm -hmm. Cumble. They also found his choice of words that he had written in the note interesting yes. that the house showed no, no signs, signs of, of life. life. I I don't know. So they found this eerie and Anita had drove with Peter to Albany, New York. It was Karen's funeral was being held there. She's basically hitching a ride with Peter because Peter has to take a trip to Boston. When police spoke with Anita about Peter, they mentioned the scratch on the hand on his hand. And she's like, you know what? I in the car ride, I did notice the scratch. And she's thinking to herself, oh, my gosh, I may have driven cross country with one of my good friend and my previous roommates murderer. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. So she found that very eerie too. Yeah. So then police is coming, or I'm sorry, Peter is coming back from Boston. His trip is done. He was again interviewed by police. They asked him what he was referencing in his note when he wrote that he had something to give Karen. He told them that it was a reggae tape because he knew Karen loved reggae. He said that when he arrived at the house, he did not notice any of the broken glass that police ultimately found. Um, police found this hard to believe because Amy did see that glass was scattered there. Maybe he just wasn't paying attention. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. That's stupid. That's impossible. How do you not notice broken glass unless you're a complete idiot? I don't know. So Peter explained that he had come to the house because he had plans to have dinner with Karen that night. He told police that he thought David was going to be there too. He didn't realize that David was in Rhode Island on business. Police questioned if Peter had feelings for Karen or a potential romantic relationship with her. David is also reinforcing this idea and told police that he had his own suspicions that Peter was trying to get closer to Karen. Odds are you're making a mixtape for somebody. Uh, yes, if that was what he was actually bringing, he probably has some feelings for her. I don't know if he made a tape or if it was just a reggae tape. I'm not sure. Yeah, so either way, he. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the first thing, especially with so much rage in this this incident here. Yeah. So Peter has a girlfriend and she's saying, hey, at this point in time with the way police are talking to you, you really should get a lawyer. So I'm assuming he lawyered up. However, I will tell you at the time that neighbors heard the scream, which one of the neighbors specifically looked at the clock, it was about 1.15. Peter had a solid alibi for that time frame. What was it? Um, I, they didn't say exact exactly. Mm-hmm. Regardless, police did not have enough evidence. They could not arrest him. And we don't know if that was really Karen's scream either. We don't know. So seven months had gone by without an arrest, and it was December of 1984. There was a farewell party being held in Gulfport. Apparently, somebody was retiring. During the party, a lady named Marie Messervie, she worked as a Gulfport uh, bus driver, excuse me. She lived outside of the two-block radius that police had canvassed. So they had not spoken with her at the time of Karen's murder. She's just having a conversation during this retirement party, and she tells a sergeant that she lived maybe three blocks away. And despite being that far away, she herself had heard the scream. She told them it sounded like a long sustained wail, which was a very stark contradiction to what firefighter and neighborhood watch leader, this is 22-year-old Gregory Lewis, what he had heard, this faint, short scream that, you know, I'm sorry, I said George Gre- Lewis? Thank you. Okay. I don't know why I wrote Gregory. My apologies. This is 22-year-old George Lewis, who works as the head of the neighborhood watch, who is also an EMT firefighter. Very, very different descriptions of this scream again this is a woman from three blocks away versus a man who lives adjacent across the street how is she hearing a very long drawn out wail and he's so close and only hears a faint scream and he's outside working in the open garage yeah granted he did have music on but it's just it's not adding up so police especially somebody that's so into everybody's business about Mm -hmm. being a a crime watch person not that yeah i'm not trying to say anything bad but it's just obviously somebody that likes to know things going on in the neighborhood yes like you'd be very keen and aware of what's going on and again he was known to report things as being the leader of the neighborhood watch so they that themselves they found that strange and they're like you're not like investigating this with all of your neighbors like you'd be the guy walking around being like did you hear what Mm -hmm. well 
mm-hmm. and writing everything down and giving it to the police. And he was that guy. Mm-hmm. So it, it was just kind of strange. So this um, now is uh, one of the detectives, Detective Tosi. He knew George because his own wife worked with George's girlfriend, Glenda. They worked as bank tellers. So they were friends. And so now seven months on, um, George is marrying Glenda on December 15th, 1984. And police are, you know, starting to want to talk to George again, because obviously they've talked to him. He's a very close neighbor. They got his story, but they're circling back to George. They want to find out how this scream was very different from what somebody else had heard. So police scheduled an interview with him. He did not show up to the station. They did interview him then in January. They administered a polygraph test during this meeting. He was failing the test while he continued to describe Karen's scream as being faint. He also told a new story now about a man that was in Karen's front yard standing near a tree who was tall and had red hair. Oddly enough, he himself had red hair. So he never told police anything about this on the first time they spoke with him. He just said, I was in the garage. I walked out to the street. I stood there. I looked around. I didn't see anything. I returned back to the house. Now, all of a sudden, there's a man by the tree in Karen's yard. Oh, no. Strange. So this guy, again, the guy that gets in everybody's business probably about these things going on in the neighborhood forgot conveniently forgot to say there was a guy with red hair standing in the yard when he's uh, again the head of the neighborhood watch and a woman is murdered yeah like now is the time so he said of course police are saying why the hell didn't you tell us this the first time we talked to you he said i was afraid because this man obviously knows where i live i was in my garage so i didn't want to get myself into trouble that's why i didn't tell you that So police were skeptical of what George was saying, but Sergeant Tosi and a few other officers tested George's vision from the same distance of where he was claiming to have seen this person standing who was tall and had red hair. Mm. They're testing it, and he is not able to see a description. Wow, good idea. So police are now believing he's lying, and this person was not, he did not see this. Okay. So police also showed him pictures of alleged suspected prowlers in the neighborhood. He could not identify them as any of the men that he saw near this tree. Police began to speak with women in the neighborhood about prowlers. One woman said that she was being watched by a man who ran away when she got closer to her window. So she was in her house. She sensed somebody was out there. Maybe she saw movement. She goes closer to her window to see who this person was. Who does she describe them? this person as? George Lewis. Mm. So he's like a peeping Tom, ugh, basically, gross. which is so ugh, it's creepy. Yuck. So, because, you know, obviously you're in your house, you assume you're safe and you have your privacy. Privacy, yeah. No. So, police brought George in yet again for more questioning. He did admit to loitering near this woman's window. He claimed it was because he was fulfilling his neighborhood watch duties. Yeah, watching girls undress. You <laughs> oh, really? Creep. You're standing on the street where a woman happens to be changing or doing whatever she was well, like, you doing. Didn't, you didn't fulfill your duties when that woman got murdered, you piece of shit. Right? Strange. Strange that a woman is screaming out and you do nothing, but you just happen to be by this lady's woman, window who's changing. So in March of 1985, George was given a second polygraph test. He was questioned about the murder as well as the peeping allegations. He was specifically asked if he had raped and murdered Karen. He said no, and this test showed that he was lying. 
Obviously, lie detector tests we know can be faulty. We know they can't hold up in a court of law. Not admissible. <clears throat> exactly. I do think they can be helpful because it can get people to admit things. Yeah, be like, see this, George? This thing moving all over the place? That means you're lying. So you mm-hmm. tell us now and you're going to have a lot less on your plate or we can go to court and prove that it was you with all these footprints and everything. Mm-hmm. We know it was you, you scumbag. So he's changing his story now again. And this time he said that the man that he had seen by the tree in the yard had actually threatened to kill him. This made him very nervous, and his nerves is why he failed his polygraph test. Mm -hmm. This guy's a really good storyteller. He should have been like an author or something. Yeah. So again, you know, anytime somebody's changing their story over and over and over, they're not telling the truth. Because if they were, they would have said all these things the first time around. So again, police are not buying this story. At this point in time, they're taking his fingerprints, his footprints, And during their continued investigation, police learned that George had allegedly abused his previous wife. He had been involved in a swingers club. His friends claimed that he had shown sexual interest in Karen before she had even moved in with David. How so? Because obviously she was over there. She was spending time with David. But he had made some slide or... um, Snide. Snide or something comments to neighbors that he wanted to participate in an orgy with Karen. So he definitely took notice of Karen. He found her attractive. Right away, we know that he was looking at her. Mm -hmm. Is there any law against that? No, of course not. No, but he's a sexually charged guy. Mm -hmm. You know, any kind of swinger or anything like that is definitely somebody that loves a lot of sex. So being in a swingers club doesn't make you a murderer. But, you know, these they're just taking these notes. He's also abused a previous wife. So, again, he's only 22 years old. He's not an old guy. Oh, okay. Thanks for a reminder. I pictured like an old guy. Yeah. So in March, you don't see a lot of sorry to interrupt. You don't see a lot of 22 year olds that are head of the neighborhood watch. No, you don't. But I guess this is the 80s. People matured a lot faster than I don't know. I, I don't know. All right, go on. So in March of 1986, nearly two years after Karen was murdered, police completed the analysis of their footprint from the crime scene in comparison with George's. It was a match. Took them a year to figure that out, huh? Well, they didn't necessarily get it right away. This was all because, you know, oh, seven months after that's when they found out that the screams didn't line up. It, it's all this yeah. is all taking time. Got it. So police brought him in again. And once again, what can you guess that I'm going to say here? I uh, changed the story. He changed his story. <laughs> ah, interesting. Yeah. Boy, we are really going on a just a <laughs> the murderer turn came over. Events. The murderer came over, said, "I saw what you saw. You better not say anything ever, and you're going to be nervous for every polygraph test." So at this point, now he's kind of getting rid of the whole idea that he saw a person there. Now he's saying, you know, he did hear something. He saw something. He had actually gone up to approach the window of Karen's house because he was thinking something was going on. He looked through the window. He saw that she was injured and bleeding, and he went inside to help her. He saw that her throat had been cut. Now, keep in mind that this is a detail that the police have never, ever released to the media. Nobody knows this except for insiders that she had died from her throat being slashed. Mm. So he's saying something specific to what actually happened. And that he, you know, he saw that her throat had been slashed. He didn't want to put himself in a position where he could be accused of being the one that did it. And so he just fled from the scene and did nothing about it. That's his new story. That's my greatest fear, honestly. Like, if I happen to be upon a murder scene, I'm like, my one of my first thoughts after this is horrific, I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to get pegged for this. Yeah, I mean, that is reasonable. 
Um, I will tell you, though, again, it was not obvious that her throat had been slit when police responded to the scene 30 hours later because it was so bloody. They, could, they couldn't tell. You'd be, have to be an expert and manipulate her and such and to see exactly what happened. And he's saying he saw it just by looking at her. Yeah. So things just aren't adding up here. So later, a woman came forward and told police that she had been given a white teddy from George. It was too large for her, but it would have been the size that Karen would have worn. Reports indicate that this woman was Tanya Deshone, who is a neighbor of Karen and David's. She was only 17 years old. Again, he's only 22. Um, but apparently she had been involved in a sexual relationship with George. Mind you, he is in a relationship during this time. So it sounds like he's not very faithful. Swingers. According to Tanya, George gave her the lingerie as a birthday present in the summer of 1984. David indicated that George always had a thing for Karen. So David himself just knows that George was interested in in his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. It was obvious to police that he waited for his opportunity and found that David was out of town. Karen was home alone and he decided to make this sickening and horrific move. And friends of Lewis thought, though, that this is all wrong. You've got the wrong guy. They insisted that Tosi had made a mistake and believed that just the way they knew George was enough to say he's an innocent man. So a lot of people are believing this guy's innocent because really up until this point, he's kind of been a stand up kind of guy. I do now know we know that there's been allegations of abuse with a previous relationship. A lot of people don't know that, though, what goes on behind closed doors. Sure. So now it's March of 1986, and it's two years after Karen, almost almost two years after she was attacked and murdered, George was then taken into custody. During the trial, George changed the details of a story. Yet again, I'm losing count as how many times this has been changed. He indicated that he uh, he's saying, yes, I went into the house to investigate what had happened to Karen. This is when I came upon her bloody body on the floor. I was so taken aback and sick by what I saw that I actually had to step over her, step into the bathroom and throw up into her toilet. And that's how my footprint was left. My bloody footprint was left on her floor. Hand it to the guy. I mean, he's got <laughs> these stories that are somewhat believable. They're, none yeah. of them are horrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all like, okay, I could see that. It's like, okay, I could see that too. So he's like, yeah, that is my my bloody footprint. And you know what? He's an EMT. So, you know, he's probably seen some bad things. And then he just left her. Yeah, I know. That's really bad. I mean, they're just putting him there and he's saying he was there. But, you know, unless they have something more, they're maybe not going to get him. I mean, that's pretty much what they have. Except, of course, there's a story that he gifted the white teddy that was missing from the house. Yeah, that's bad. And uh, you need the knife. Mm, yeah, they didn't never, ever, ever mentioned a murder weapon. So okay. it's my assumption it was never found. So his lawyers are insisting you've got the wrong guy. It's Peter Cumble who left the note. He's the guy. He's the one that did this. Um, and then they said, you know, they're saying the story is Peter was inside murdering Karen. The man that George happened to see by the tree was his lookout guy. That's who he saw. The ginger. Yeah. So as deliberations began, George sat on the bench. He was snuggled with Glenda, his wife, as well as their two-year-old daughter. Some saw this as a family under siege, while others had viewed it as a display to win the juror's sympathy. George was found guilty of first-degree murder and sexual assault. He received a life sentence. He and his attorneys filed multiple appeals, and the Innocence Project of Florida actually took on his case. So what this is, this group um, uses DNA testing to exonerate those that are believed to be convicted unjustly. 
An article from June of 2009 indicated that two attempts were made to make DNA comparisons. Both times the results were inconclusive. Hmm. So they couldn't definitively say that, you know, George was innocent. We can release him. Glenda ultimately divorced George. She indicated that she still believed he was innocent and only did so since she and her two daughters needed to move on with their own lives. After his conviction, a trial judge overturned the charges, reasoning that Florida law required the evidence against George to exclude every reasonable hypothesis of innocence. He indicated that the evidence suggested versus proved that Karen was raped and the judge entered a verdict of acquittal for the charge. However, the prosecution appealed the decision and both the murder and rape convictions were reinstated. So definitely he tried his butt off to get out of these sentencings. It was pretty close. It was pretty close. And the fact that, you know, they took his case on from the Innocence Project. Yeah. So obviously people believed in his innocence. And again, it was 1984 at that point. DNA technology has greatly evolved over the years. So they believed that there was a possibility they could have you know, used some of the DNA and gotten him out, but that was not the case. So Detective Tosi understood that many believed that George was innocent as part of human nature, just because when you love and trust someone, you ultimately want to believe the best in them. Sure. So that's really where a lot of people claiming of his innocence were just like, I know him, there's no way he could do this. Right. Some people can be capable of things we would never imagine they are capable of. I'd hate for one of my friends to be like put up on the stand. I'd always be like the very yeah i look at facts so i'd be like hey i don't know maybe he did kill somebody i mean <laughs> like my friends were like mike stand up for me i'd be like eh, i'm gonna let you fight this one out you know let's hope you don't think your friends are capable of murder i, I think anybody if they're put in a bad situation and maybe they've got something screwy in their head that is capable of possibly anything but put in a bad situation this was not be put no, in a bad no. situation this guy was out working in his job or his um, garage and saw that karen was home alone yeah yeah he went to her i mean he should go to jail for something especially because he was there and never reported it that should be something yeah but the footprint print did match so tosi could not understand why george did what he did because again this is his friend this is somebody that he personally knew he feels you know he was just simply infatuated with karen and had been watching her for some time and saw that she was alone and took his opportunity so she may have rejected him after he had come over and made a move maybe he attacked her and murdered her so that she couldn't report him and turn him in as the years had passed, Tosi believes that George started to convince himself of his own innocence, no longer even knowing the truth. Because if you tell yourself something long enough, you start to believe that it's true. And the further you get from something, the worse your memories are. It's just like a scientific fact that, you know, you don't remember things the same way that they actually happened the further away from exactly. the incident. So he remained, when I say he, George remained at the Tomoka Correctional Institution in Daytona Beach until he died at age 52 in December of 2015. And for the life of me, there is no report as to what his cause of death was. Like, it's just not out there. It's <laughs> just like, yep, he's dead. So He's dead. Yeah. So he died in 2015. Okay. So, so we don't know for sure. I mean, it sounds like it. He was convicted and charged for her rape and murder. So according to that, he is the killer. Let's bring up the things that you th- like you're thinking. So the white teddy, right? The white, the white teddy. teddy. So he's, you know, a s- guy that's into lots of sex and probably some stuff. I um, mean, you know, maybe while well, he was there, he stole it, you know, and just gave that. That's I think that's probably the biggest thing that gives him away. Is the that, footprint match. So we know he was in the house and he admitted to being in the house because right. he said, yes, that is my footprint. So he was in that house. And he said he puked in the toilet. 
he said that, but, you know, he could say anything. The guy sure. can, clearly can't be trusted. He changed his story like, so many times. I can't believe the Innocence Project, like, didn't... That was 2009 where they looked into his DNA and they couldn't find anything conclusive? Nothing like, conclusive. Do you think they work just to find people innocent and non-conclusive means that, oh, whoops, he's guilty and we're not going to say anything? I don't know. Yeah, that'd be interesting to look into. Um, but the, I mean, the DNA stuff works. So what, how how did that? How was that inconclusive? I mean, maybe it was mixed with other blood. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure and how that was. You, but. Go, you go back to Peter and his scratch on his hand. Uh, but, you know, he could have gotten that scratch. You have sure. a huge scratch on the back of your calf right now. Yes, absolutely. Did you kill somebody? Not that you know of. And then George, he didn't have any marks on him, right? Because... Uh, uh, George had no visible marks Karen, on him. Karen per fought se. hard. Karen fought really hard. She fought hard against a knife, yeah. not necessarily against his bare body. Right, right, right. Those were slash marks, defensive wounds. Um, again, at the time that police actually talked to George, they he was not considered a suspect. He was just in that two block radius of neighbors. So when they first talked to him, he may have had scratches and they just weren't aware of. They didn't bring him in necessarily. They were going around canvassing the neighborhood, asking people, what did you hear? What did you see? So when they talked to him, he could have been hiding scratches that they couldn't see. They didn't truly focus their sights on him for seven months when they heard the variance in the screams. Mm -hmm. They did not line up in what he was saying. And also, why would he say it was a faint scream it clearly was not. There's a lot of things that add up against him, but mm-hmm. you know, as they always say, when when it goes to jury, it's is it beyond a shadow of a doubt? There is a doubt in my mind that it may not have been him. Is there any in your mind? The fact that he was in the house and the woman was dead is is it possible that somebody had come in and killed her and he just so happened to go in? I don't know. Oh, and the killer came back and did things. Lock the door. Right. So he would know that. He's nearby. However, he does work as a firefighter. He could have been out at work. He could have been sleeping. Who knows? It's not like he's sitting there watching the house 24-7. Yeah. I don't know. That's that's a tricky one, man. Either way, poor Karen um, just murdered up in like probably the the pinpoint of her life to that point. Yep. You know, just maybe not pinpoint, but a very high in her life. She was a 36-year-old woman in a new career, a new relationship, moving in together, exciting. She loved Florida. She's simply coming home to go to sleep and gets murdered in her own home. Mm, Tragic. Tragic, definitely. Well, thank you for telling her story. It's unfortunate. So thank you, everybody, for listening. If you like what you hear, uh, you can support us, this little mom and pop podcast we got going on over here. I'm uh, Pop. She's mom. I'm mom. Yeah. I'm ma. You can become a patron. It's in the show notes. So go ahead over there. As little as five bucks. You know, hey, throw us a bone, whatever. We appreciate it. And you wouldn't believe how much we do appreciate it. Yeah. I think there's uh, uh, 30, over 30 episodes available for our patrons. So thank you for doing that. And I want to say welcome to Georgia and Angie, the newest members of the Crime and Coffee Couple Club. Lovely. And thank you guys so much. We appreciate the heck out of each and every one of you. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week. Until next time. Bye. Bye.